0: Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. We are getting closer and closer to the CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit with each podcast episode. Look at us. We're already in February which means CanMed 23 is a little over three months away. I hope you are as excited as we are, and I hope to see you down in Marco Island this May. If you are new to the podcast and you aren't aware of CanMed 23, it's an exclusive three-day event designed for Candice industry thought leaders. CanMed provides an immersive forum where cannabis researchers, physicians, patients, entrepreneurs, and investors collaborate and share their latest innovations and insights day one kicks off with four intensive professional development workshops including a full-day medical practicum the following two days will feature 30 oral presenters curated by our advisory board covering the latest innovations in cannabis science medicine cultivation and safety testing and this all takes place at the Marriott Marco Island Beach Resort May 15th through 17th. Check out all the latest information at canmedevents.com and request your invitation. We're adding new information every day so be sure to sign up for email alerts so you don't miss out on any big announcements. My guest today is Dr. Sherman Halm. Sherman is the Director of Regulatory Affairs at Medicinal Genomics where he provides recommendations to regulatory officials that are tasked with drafting or modifying microbial testing regulations for cannabis, hemp, and psychedelic mushrooms to ensure safe products for patients and consumers. Before medicinal genomics, Sherman worked for the New Jersey Department of Health. While there, he led teams that started the Cannabis Testing Laboratory, the Cannabis Microbial Testing Unit, and he created the all states medical cannabis program required testing compendium at CAMED 23 sherman will share the latest updates to his compendium to elucidate the present microbial testing landscape and identify a consensus set of tests to lower public health risk during our conversation we discussed how concerned cannabis consumers should be about microbial contamination how microbial regulations differ from state to state or jurisdiction to jurisdiction, how growers in certain jurisdictions struggle to meet microbial regulations, the difference between presence absence tests and total count microbial tests, and the difference between plating and qPCR. Before we get to my conversation with Sherman, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Labware. LabWare is recognized as the global leader in providing enterprise-scale laboratory automation solutions with over 40 offices across six continents. LabWare's enterprise laboratory platform is a unique and proven suite of product capabilities that encompass LIMS, ELN, LES, method execution, and SDMS in an integrated and enterprise-ready solution. For more information, check out labware.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sherman Hom. Good morning, Sherman. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Good morning, Ben. Glad to be here, and I'd like to express my appreciation for this opportunity to share my knowledge uh, concerning uh, various uh, cannabis regulatory
0: issues. Right, and let's specifically, let's talk about microbial testing. As some listeners may know, that microbial testing is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts here at Medicinal Genomics, our flagship product line, PathoSeek is used by many of the top cannabis labs to test products for microbial contamination. But although we're well, well-versed in the micro world, I know that not all of our listeners are. So, Sherman, I was hoping we could start off with the basics. So first and foremost, how concerned should consumers be of microbial contamination in cannabis products?
1: Well, in my mind, cannabis consumers should be concerned about microbial contamination. Some consumers are patients with illnesses. Some of these patients are immunocompromised. And what I've done is I've collected over 25 clinical case studies from the medical literature of people becoming infected with microbial pathogens affiliated with cannabis use. There is even one clinical case study of an immunocompetent person using cannabis that got valley fever, which is caused by a fungus called cryptococcus and can, can, this illness can be quite severe. These cases may be just the tip of the iceberg.
0: So valley fever and cryptococcus, I mean, I, I have to admit that's new to me. Um, so cryptococcus, what is that? Is that a bacteria, a fungus, and and how are labs testing for that? Or are they, I guess, is a good question.
1: Well, that is the thing. Um, Cryptococcus is a fungus that's found in the soil, initially found in the soils of the United States and the Southwest. And, and it's spread uh, in actually um, in windstorms. And so f- cannabis cultivation sites that either grow outdoors or even uh, these fungal spores can get inside indoor grows through the HVAC system and, and and be in the cannabis flowers. And at this time, there are no states that require uh, testing uh, for cryptococcus. But I'd like to talk later concerning the expansion of the microbial testing rules of specific pathogens uh, from now into the future.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so now what is, or what are the most dangerous microbial pathogens that can be found in cannabis?
1: The most dangerous microbial pathogens that are required for testing presently are the as uh, four Aspergillus species, they are specifically Aspergillus flavus, Aspergillus fumigatus, Aspergillus niger, and Aspergillus terreus. Another uh, pathogen are, are bacteria, and these are the Salmonella species. Practically all Salmonella species are pathogenic. I believe the literature shows there are only two that are not. Uh, I would also include the toxin producing E. coli, the most pathogenic of the six pathotypes, uh, due to, as a check uh, uh, for sanitary uh, uh, purposes or detection of unsanitary uh, um, practices in cultivation sites or processing sites or product manufacturing sites. And I also continue to monitor the medical literature for other path- pathogens that have been affiliated with cannabis use as possible candidates in the future.
0: Okay. And so I was wanted to ask you a little bit more about aspergillus. So when you're saying you were reviewing the, the clinical cases, how many of those involved um, aspergillus c- contamination?
1: Well, a vast majority... Uh, you know well over a couple of dozen um and and, the, and these are respiratory illnesses the prevalent one being aspergillosis uh, which can cause severe illnesses and a couple of the clinical case studies indicated death uh, to the patient so it can be quite dangerous i've actually found two um Epidemiological studies that showed Salmonella outbreaks affiliated with cannabis. Okay, and
0: going back to Aspergillus again. Sorry, but um, I think it's important to clarify that. Is it? Am I correct in my understanding that the the risk is really in inhaled products for Aspergillus? That correct? is
1: correct. That is correct because Aspergillus, uh, these Aspergillus microorganisms produce these spores that are readily emitted into the air and and so one could be simply handling uh cannabis flowers to make uh uh, you know to make a joint for example can be inhaling these spores and also i have um, a study a research study that shows that under certain conditions of vaporization temperatures like a volcano for example which is a device for inhaling uh, cannabis flower um, the spores actually survive those temperatures
0: wow yeah and i hadn't i hadn't thought of it i guess until now that you know aspergillus is really a concern for the processors as well, or those who are working in a cultivation facility. If you, if they were handling trimming um, any flower that were contaminated, uh, they could be breathing it in.
1: That's right. And some of the workers who are diligently supporting this industry uh, may be patients themselves that have, uh, you know, and there are immunocompromised people that don't, consume cannabis that work in these uh, cannabis uh, sites.
0: Yeah, and is, that might be another important thing to point out as well. Um, the risk of developing aspergillosis, it's, is it only amongst immunocompromised people or is it just much, much more likely that it would develop in those folks?
1: I think it would be much more likely, first of all, I'd like to qualify, I'm not a clinician Um, But as far as I've read in the literature, the persons that are immunocompromised are more likely to uh, get uh, this respiratory infection. Okay. All right. So let's move on a little
0: bit to the regulatory landscape. Can you describe the regulatory landscape when it comes to microbial testing on cannabis?
1: Well, I'm going to focus just on the United States and to date there are 37 states, Washington, D.C., and one major U.S. territory. And these jurisdictions have adopted, believe it or not, 41 sets of microbial testing rules. There are 22 different required microbial tests uh, from all the ju- different jurisdictions 10 are what's called total count tests such as total aerobic bacteria or total yeast and molds and 12 are specific pathogen tests in which earlier I I named uh, five of them
0: all right so we have 37 states Washington DC and one territory and 41 sets of microbial testing rules is this does this um um, cover both medical and adult use? Is that why there's so many?
1: Uh, yeah, a very astute, fast calculator person can see that there actually are 39 jurisdictions, but right. one sets microbial testing rules. And that's because two states, Arizona and New York, have separate microbial testing rules um for the medical and the adult use programs.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was I was trying to do the math quick. I didn't think that was adding up. Um now, I would never ask you to speak for the regulators, but why do you think that there is really apparently little to no consensus when it comes to the the regulations from state to state?
1: The lack of consensus, I believe, can be viewed from a more historical viewpoint. I became the project manager to lead a a group of chemists to, to start the first cannabis testing lab in the state of New Jersey under the auspices of the New Jersey Department of Health, Public Health and Environmental Laboratories. And subsequently, I was involved in this association a public health laboratories cannabis community of practice. These were government officials from different departments, some who were tasked to draft the testing rules for their cannabis program. And there were few subject matter experts. Concerning testing rules, and I heard the pain in their voices. I knew as little as they did, and what occurred is what I is is what I well. I, I feel that there's different factors that were involved in how this lack of consensus occurred. First, the lack of Uh, subject matter experts in cannabis testing roles being an emerging industry, then the time pressure of implementation of the cannabis program caused what I call cut and paste syndrome, Mm -hmm. whereby the regulatory officials simply looked at another or a few other states uh, microbial testing rules and simply pick theirs without sufficient scientific due diligence. Okay.
0: And now just how wide we've talked about all the, all the different sets of microbial requirements that are out there, out there. How widely do these regulations differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction?
1: Right. that That's a very good question. Uh, the regulations differ widely in several ways. One would be the number of required microbial tests, where I have observed a range of one test to 10 tests. Also, for each of the tests, each test type, you might say, The action levels, let's take the example of total yeast and mold. The action level can vary up to 1,000 fold difference between, between one state and another, I'm sorry, 100 fold. And then also the test combinations. So for example, a vast majority of the microbial testing rules for plant material amongst all the jurisdictions are unique.
0: Wow. I have to imagine if you were a multi-state operator, if you were a cultivator operating in several different states, that would be difficult to, you know, standardize your procedures or anything to, to be able to meet all these different requirements.
1: Well, it is a challenge, and one must have an excellent chief compliance officer to examine the regulations for um, the microbial testing regulations in each state, understand them very, very well, note the differences, and, and recommend the modifications to one standard operating procedures if if needed one cannot just do a cookie cutter type process and just carry it from state to state
0: absolutely yeah they need to they need to know the differences in the state regulations and quick plug for medicinalgenomics.com where we have a tool that sherman was very instrumental in putting the information together on this but we have an interactive tool on our website that shows the microbial regulations for all the different states. Um, so if folks are interested in checking that out, I'll put a link in the show description. Uh, but it's a, that's a great tool to kind of really get a sense for all these different regulations and, um, and what they mean. But I'm curious, you know, we've talked about how the regulations are, are very varied from state to state. How does microbial compare to other um other compliance tests, like pesticides, heavy metals, and potency um is there a similar problem there, or is microbial sort of unique in that sense?
1: Okay I gave that off the top of my head. I can say that the similarity or diversity of required tests for these other chemical classes depends on which one we're talking about. Mm. So you got the cannabinoids, you got the metals, and mycotoxin testing show similarity amongst the states. For the cannabinoids, many states require quantification of four, which is the THCA, THC, CBDA, and CBD. For metals, many states require what everyone calls the big four arsenic cadmium, lead, and mercury. For mycotoxins, most states require a family of aflatoxins and a specific ochratoxin A. On the other hand, in 2019, I counted over 500 unique pesticides that were required by at least one jurisdiction. Some states had very short lists Pesticides in other states had very long lists. Mm. So what we have is similarity as well as diversity. Interesting.
0: Yeah, well, lots to navigate with all of these tests. Um, But going back to microbial specifically, um, I think you had touched on this before when you were talking about the diversity of the different uh, regulations that are out there. But I was hoping if you could describe the difference between what we refer to as total count tests and specific pathogen tests.
1: Well, the obvious difference between a total count test and a specific count pathogen test is that the total count test simply counts the number of cells per gram or per milliliter of cannabis sample while the specific pathogen test detects the presence or absence of the human pathogen that can cause illness.
0: Right. So these total count tests, there is an allowable limit. You can have X amount of this family, whereas the pathogen is, we don't want any of that in the the product at all. And now what are sort of the the pros and cons, benefits and drawbacks of each of these types of tests?
1: Well, I want to start with the total count test. An example is total yeast and molds. What I see is the primary drawback for a total count test is that a result expressed as colony-forming units that exceeds the action level carries a financial consequence. The damaging result that the cultivator or processor or product manufacturer uh, factor receives does not provide this, the submitting organization, any information that any of the yeast or molds counted in the sample were human pathogens. So if a jurisdiction is dead set on keeping a total count test I, w- I would recommend that a second test be required that looks for the presence of specific bacterial or fungal pathogens that may hurt or cause illness in human beings. Now on the other hand for specific pathogen tests the primary benefit is that one detects a bacterium or a mold that w- that might cause a patient or consumer to get sick or even die. On the other hand, the drawback or or what's missing is there are probably other pathogens besides the 12 that are required presently. And that is why I constantly monitor the medical literature for other candidate pathogens to possibly consider testing for.
0: Right. An example of that could be one that we brought up earlier, right? Cryptococcus, um, that's but, right. As you pointed, I, but as you pointed out, ahead. the total count tests aren't necessarily going to protect uh, people from that, because if your state's allowing, you know, 10,000 CFUs of total yeast and mold um, and isn't looking specifically for cryptococcus, I mean, that could be included in that number. It's below the threshold that's getting out there, but you know, potentially could be harmful.
1: That, 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 is, that is correct. And I, when I uh, entered the cannabis microbial testing space as a, a traditional as well as molecular microbiologist with five decades of experience, and I observed these required total count tests, I asked regulatory officials And other subject matter experts in in the microbial testing world, why these total counts, or what value these total count tests had. Or why were they adopted? And the primary answer I got was: well, we we're requiring this on the side of caution. But that's why I recommend if you exceed if you're dead set on keeping the total count tests. I feel that a second test should be done seeking specific pathogens because as I understand from networking with multi-state cultivators, millions of dollars of cannabis is being diverted into concentrate or destroyed due to laboratory results that do not provide any real information about the danger of the sample to human health.
0: Yeah, and I think you touched on a great point there, and it was one of the questions I had here to ask you, um, but I, again, I think you kind of answered it here, but maybe to reiterate, you know, these microbial testing regulations have a real effect on growers. So, you know, although it's it's nice that the regulators are erring on the side of caution, um, it can... It can be a real financial toll or, you know, can lead to this diversion to, to concentrate if the regulations are hard for the growers to meet. So, you know, maybe you could just kind of reiterate, how do these microbial testing regulations affect growers?
1: Okay. Yeah. I'll uh, try to summarize my answer in a succinct manner. Uh, I'll start with the total count tests they always have an action level. So let's take a common 10,000 colony forming units per gram of flour sample. If the number of colonies per gram exceeds the action level, the consequence in many states is diversion to produce concentrate with a retest of the total yeast and mold. As I understand it, that's a financial loss because the, the value of flour versus the value of concentrate is, uh, flour is more valuable. So as a grower processor or product manufacturer, if I was such an owner, I would have no information whether the diverted batch of cannabis flour had any human pathogens and may cause illness. On the other hand, a grower that that knows one has a pathogens in the flower if i was the owner i then i would want an opportunity to divert the batch to make concentrate with a retest instead of destruction mm-hmm. which is required in some states yeah at least get something out of it that's right let's be reasonable <laughs>
0: Speaking of reasonable, are there certain jurisdictions where growers have a really hard time meeting the requirements?
1: There is one state, and that is Illinois. It is the only state where growers have an almost impossible time getting underneath a particular action level. And that is the action level for total yeast and mold tests. And it is 1000 colony forming units per gram, which is 10 to 100 times lower than all the other states that require that particular test. I'd like to elaborate a little bit more. Uh, We have laboratory testing evidence that perhaps many Illinois growers are using various remediation technologies to lower the number of yeast and molds and other microorganisms before testing. Now, some remediation technologies degrade the beneficial chemicals in the cannabis, while other remediation technologies may cause the formation of viable but not cultural microbes that will resuscitate and multiply on dispensary shelves. And this was exemplified by last year's Chicago Sun-Times investigative report that a vast majority of the dispensary-bought pre-rolls had total yeast and mold levels above the action level, but the certificate of analysis showed levels under the action levels. But one can make a parallel concerning the dangerous aspergillus pathogens, whereby a grower could perform a remediation uh, method on the cannabis flower cause the formation of viable, but not culturable, dangerous pathogenic Aspergillus species. It would pass the test. You wouldn't be able to detect it. Let's say on an on agar plate and then it would grow on the dispensary shelf and possibly cause harm to a medical patient.
0: Right. And now I think it's important to, to clarify too, that, you know, we're talking about sort of an allowable limit, which, you know, for, again, for someone who's not in the microbial world, they'd think like, well, I, why is there any, <laughs> why is there any yeast and mold on my cannabis? Like is, is it? <laughs> Feasible. I think I know the answer to this question, but maybe we should kind of spell it out that, you know, it's not possible to really have cannabis flower that is devoid of any microbial life um, just because of the nature of it. Correct.
1: That's right. Um, microorganisms are ubiquitous in all environments, and there are beneficial microorganisms. There's what I call benign ones that are neutral they're just hanging out and then there are those that are pathogenic and as a microbiologist most of the microorganisms on our earth are beneficial and there are a few pathogens
0: excellent and, um, and you did bring up another point and, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't address this, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the difference between microbial testing techniques, specifically plating versus QPCR.
1: Yes, that this, uh, uh, a very hot topic and very important topic to to have dialogue upon because the other major regulatory issue when it comes to cannabis microbial testing is not only what test is required or action level that you have but also what rules that you have in what i call allowable methods so when i started examining microbial testing rules for allowable methods, I noted that some states were very one-sided, which is what is termed the gold standard or historical standard, and that is the culture or agar plating method. And then there were some states that allowed both which is more fair because one has to know the advantages and disadvantages of these two primary methods. And I have, and I have performed over decades, both types of technologies. And I sincerely feel that there are many, well, there are multiple drawbacks concerning plating methods. And the first that comes to my mind is that not all microorganisms, well, you have to pick one growth medium for your counting or enumerating a group of microorganisms, and not there is no one medium that will count all of them. Generically, close to 95% of the microorganisms on the earth do not form a colony on a plate. And so you're missing a lot. Uh, Another feature of the cannabis matrix are the cannabinoids. It's a very unique matrix because the cannabinoids have antibiotic activity. And so that will alter uh, your results because many bacterial species and fungal species they are sensitive to antibiotics. And also many, both bacteria as well as fungal species have been found to be what's called endophytes. Part of their life cycle is inside the plant tissue. So any method that that tries to isolate, those microorganisms within the plant tissue will destroy all the the microbial cells uh, and really alter ones or many of the microbial cells which will alter your test. And also the culture or plating methods are done at a single temperature and some pathogens microbial pathogens grow at lower temperatures than the usual 35 to 37 degrees centigrade. On the other hand, the quantitative polymerase chain reaction test for for microbial detection uh, avoids all these drawbacks and they're also known in many industries especially the clinical diagnostic industry to be the most sensitive the most specific also to have the lowest limit of detection and they and the fastest turnaround time which is very important so those are the four advantages i see with quantitative PCR. And of course, everyone is just waiting me to finish my, my, um, my thoughts. And it happened to me just yesterday where there was a microbiologist that said to me, well, there is one big problem with QPCR tests and that is one might detect genetic material from dead pathogenic cells. And so therefore um A positive, which would cause a consequence, you know, is a false positive. And I want to simply share with everyone that multiple test developers have developed methods to eliminate the DNA from dead cells before the the detection of the DNA from live cells, which is quite an advancement. For the diagnostic testing world
0: absolutely and medicinal genomics is one of those developers grim reefer that's one of our products you can check it out on medicinalgenomics.com all right sherman I, we're winding down here but before i let you go one more question that i want to ask you because we did call out uh, illinois for their their overly restrictive regulations i was curious. In your opinion, what jurisdictions have done a good job regulating cannabis microbial testing?
1: Well, there are four states I'd like to give a shout out to, and that would be California, Oregon, Montana, and Vermont. And these are examples where these jurisdictions follow what I believe is the appropriate or the correct approach at this time and that is requiring for the testing of specific pathogens. Also I'd like to give a shout out to the states uh, such as Oregon, Vermont, Montana and Connecticut that that for allowable methods require the AOAC performance test methods that follow the guidelines of of the the standard method performance requirements that AOAC issued for the test developers.
0: Excellent. All right, Sherman, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Um, Look forward to hearing your presentation at CanMed as well and uh, spending some time with you down in Marco Island.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ben, for this opportunity uh, to share. All right.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Sherman Hall. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, LabWare. Our next episode will drop February 15th, that's two weeks from today. In the meantime, head over to CanMedEvents.com now to check out our preliminary speaker list and details about our professional development workshops. While you're there, if you haven't received an invitation yet, you can request your invitation for the CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit. We are really excited about this year's event and truly believe it has the power to transform our industry through collaboration and innovation. I sincerely hope to see you there. But if you can't make it in person to Marco Island, we do hope that you will continue to stay connected with us through the podcast and through our social media channels. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Kim at events. All right. And that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.